spending some money on research now helps keep costs low in the long term. So it's about keeping costs low today, but also keeping costs low 20 years from now. And if we let climate change run unabated, then that will be very expensive for society. So we have an economic interest in getting this right, and that includes research and deployment and pilots and tests and that kind of thing. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Welcome to the third part of our EEI 2023 highlight series. In this episode, you'll hear interviews with experts on harnessing the investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, the future of natural gas, financing transmission projects, and keeping the clean energy transition equitable and affordable for all customers. Let's dive in with Dan Hahn, partner at Guidehouse, who was featured in the EEI 2022 highlight podcast episode as well. This year, he was back at EEI 2023 to participate in a dynamic panel titled Clean Energy for All, Harnessing IRA Tax Credits and Rebates. Dan, it's great to see you again, and thank you for being back with us here at EEI 2023. I remember we had the chance to chat last year as well, so just thank you for continuing to be a great partner for EEI. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And we're catching you coming right off of your panel discussion on clean energy for all, harnessing the IRA tax credits and rebates. And thank you so much again for being a participant, and that conversation was guided by Brian Wolf, EEI's Chief Strategy Officer and Executive Vice President of public policy and external affairs. Now, coming off the great discussion you just had, what were some of the biggest takeaways from your panel? And I know there's a lot of talk about what was achieved in in the Monumental Inflation Reduction Act and just the power of those tax credits, but really what comes next? What are folks focused on now that they know that those tax credits are available? Absolutely. First off, uh, I want to give Brian a ton of credit to get that group of panelists together, right? You think about the stakeholders that are involved in this process, right? You have a utility, you have a state energy office, and you have the Department of Energy who is funding these programs, right? The $8.8 billion of homes and HERA home rebate programs for, you know, at the end of the day, citizens and the customers. So kudos to Brian for bringing that together. Um, did a fantastic job and just appreciate the fact that uh, Guidehouse was invited to be on that panel as well. Um, as you can imagine, we have a point of view. That's what our clients look for us to have. And what is our point of view around the uh, customer rebate program? We had a chance to really talk through that today, and not only how to design it, what challenges exist, how do you integrate that with existing state programs, how do you integrate that with existing utility programs, and what is the best effective method to actually deploy. As we heard earlier in the day, Secretary Granholm saying, deploy, 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 right? So getting that group together to have a conversation around this with the audience and hearing different perspectives on how to get it implemented, how to deploy it, how to be successful, was the biggest takeaway for me because that is a question that many of the customers and citizens that live in this country are going to be asking around, how do I gain benefits from these programs? And what are the biggest benefits, really kind of those those tangible improvements we might see for both electric companies and their customers when you have many houses looking to upgrade to more efficient and clean appliances and equipment at a point, you imagine that's going to start having an impact on the system. Right. Let me start with the customer first. The benefits to the customers were really all this is really focused on and primarily customers in the moderate to low and low income and disadvantaged community 
And I think what this Inflation Reduction Act does is provide access at speed and a financially viable model to allow for decarbonization within those communities. If you look at the other brackets, I think the access is there, the availability is there, the funding is there, the knowledge is there, the education is already there. But when you look at middle to low and disadvantaged communities, this is where marketing, socialization, so that, hey, you know, I can benefit from having a high-efficiency appliance. I can benefit from, oh, you know what? Our air conditioning went down. I need to buy a new one. Let's make sure we get a new uh, a one that is actually the most energy-efficient available on the market. Yes, it's extremely expensive, but because I qualify for, because I'm in that income bracket that qualifies, I can now go to a Lowe's or a Home Depot and buy it pretty much for free um, or up to, I think, around seven to 13000 depending on the product. But that kind of stuff is where the biggest impact can be seen and the benefits can be seen to the customers. Secondly, for the utilities and the member companies, this is a way to really augment what they do today. So many of the utilities that have existing programs, for example, my uh, co-panelist Erica from ComEd, she shared what they do. And what these programs do is help enhance their programs to be more effective so they can achieve their goals as well in regards to impact on their own energy efficiency whole homes programs as well. So we know there's a lot of powerful energy efficiency tools in the toolbox. It sounds as though a big piece of how these were designed were to make sure that we we're making them more accessible to the customers and the businesses of the homes that would really benefit the most from them. That's right. The target audience for these programs primarily are moderate to low income and disadvantaged communities. Access is important in regards to getting to these products in the most effective and efficient ways. When you think about a family who needs to replace air conditioner and knowing that there is an option where I can get a 100% rebate on anywhere between, let's say, seven dollars to $15,000 of a air conditioning replacement and help with increasing energy efficiency, helping decarbonize, that access is what this bill does. And I think the socialization, the marketing, the education around that, to know that's even available. So whether it's through a utility program or whether it's through the state energy office or whether it's through contractors and third parties and trade allies that are directly in those communities really do give an access to helping folks know that this is even out there. And that's a kind of helpful plug for me. I know we have our new findenergysavings.org website that was talked about with our vice chair, Maria Pope, and uh, Secretary Granholm from the Department of Energy and advisor to the White House, uh, John Podesta as well. Um, Electric companies absolutely have a role in helping to make sure customers are aware of the different programs that they might be eligible for, and we're making sure that they are getting pointed in the right direction to learn more. And that might be actually a good way to talk a little bit more about the kind of work that you and your team at Guidehouse to to really help electric companies and the services that you provide because as I think I've heard you say before there's a lot of moving pieces going on there's there's state programs there's electric company programs there's federal programs I know the EEI team and our member companies are hard at work with the administration who's still developing some of the implementation rules of the road just because this is we're very excited about the legislation but it's it's really new and there's just a lot of rules and guidelines that are still being developed so how are you helping electric companies really make sure that they're mindfully thinking about all these programs that are available and doing the most that they can to help their customers. We've developed a playbook specifically for this. Um, This playbook is something that whether you're a utility, whether you're a state energy office, whether you're with the Department of Energy, whether you're a local municipality, whether you're local community members, you're a trade ally, a retailer from big box store, we've developed this playbook that really outlines 
if you are coming from it from your vantage point, what considerations and design elements do you need to worry about? What things, in, because a lot of times when you think about these programs, because of their complexities, designing as much of it up front in the right way will help prevent any sort of redos, changes downstream. And we know that guidance will continue to come out. And so there has to be somewhat of a flexibility model that's included. This playbook includes, if I am a state energy office, how do I go deploy the funding in a way that is effective, can reach out to the constituents that is necessary, educate them on what these programs are. If I'm a utility, same story, but more importantly is how do I weave it to my existing program, right? When I look at it from a contractor, third-party retailer, they're on the front lines at the end of the day with these customers saying, hey, you know what? Someone comes in, they want to change their you know, um, gas to electric. What does it, what does it take? They're going to be on the front lines educating customers as well in regards to what these things are. If I'm a community outreach program, because think about this, this is going to low-income disadvantaged communities where the media digital output marketing mechanisms may not be so readily available. They may also require it in their native tongue, right? And so there's different things that we have to really consider because it's not just, hey, you know what, we can hit the audience. Well, most of us see on our phones on a daily basis, the digital marketing, we could see that. However, the audience that's actually receiving this may not have that access. So we have to consider that as well. So if you look at it from a playbook standpoint of, okay, I'm running this play, I'm running this play, I'm running this play, based on who you are, we've developed a playbook to help our clients understand what that is. And when I say clients, it includes utilities, it includes state energy office, it includes the Department of Energy, as well as our state local business, which help the state local municipal governments as well. And what would you say is the level of buy-in that you have from electric companies and from state regulators? Because it seems like this is pretty transformational. And are they eager to be working? Are they looking to really develop more sustainable business models? Are they kind of already meeting you where you are? The level of reception to this challenge, I think, is very much a very good, positive thing. In our interactions, even the interactions here at EEI um, have been very positive in regards to we all know that it's a challenge and we all have to work together in order to deploy this out. Um, I think there were some interesting um, points of view shared by uh, Dr. McCoy from the Department of Energy saying, in order to make this massive change, you do have to get everybody involved. In order to make this massive difference, in order to get to decarbonization, you can't just do it with a subsegment of the population. In order to be effective, yes, it may not be as efficient as possible just because you're talking about 250 million Americans, but if you got a decent percentage of that, and also a percentage that we're focusing primarily to moderate and low and, and disadvantaged communities, that's where the effect can be most effective, not only just from the fact that they can become more energy efficient, but also they're the population that arguably is impacted the most with the climate issues that we have in this country. And one recurring theme in these conversations here at EI 2023 is we're really not shying away from defining some of the challenges that we see. But again, we're we're also bringing together a lot of the stakeholders who are eager to be working together and solving these problems. So really thank you to you and your team for, for being at the table and working on these issues, especially um, knowing that we have the ability to really help improve the lives of our customers and, and better serve our communities. It's great to see so many stakeholders here at EI. 2023 working together toward that cause. Well, thank you for having me. And it's such a great pleasure to do this again with you this year. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we caught up with Dr. Michael Weber, Chief Technology Officer at Energy Impact Partners, who is another guest who also was featured in our EEI 2022 highlights episode. 
Dr. Weber spoke in the panel, The Future of Natural Gas and Combustion Turbines, and talked to us about the role of natural gas and reliability and what kind of efforts are underway to help drive down carbon emissions. We're excited to welcome back Dr. Michael Weber. Energy Impact Partners has been really a, a great sponsor and, and partner for EEI, and we're so happy to have you back here. And you also were on the Future of Natural Gas and Combustion Turbines session, which absolutely was a, a critical topic of discussion and really top of mind throughout EEI 2023. So thank you for being back with us and uh, interested to chat a little bit more through today. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a great conference, but I feel like this year was the best ever. I've been to many. So really congratulations to you and the team for covering so many important topics in an engaging way. For those who may not be familiar with Energy Impact Partners, can you just share a little bit about how you all got started and really the, the goals and the work that you and your team are doing? Sure. Energy Impact Partners is an investment platform custom made for the energy transition. So the idea is that we need to accelerate the change and that the change is happening and that there are great investment opportunities along the way where we can both make money for investors while also facilitating the growth of these critical technologies and startups that we're going to need. And the main difference between Energy Impact Partners and, say, Cleantech 1.0 15 years ago is that we work with the energy incumbents. We think the people who know energy the best namely the energy industry, are the ones we need to lead us through the transition because they'll adopt the new technologies and develop new business plans and that kind of thing. So we work with a lot of strategic partners, a lot of electric utilities really at the core of our sort of concept, and we're looking to make energy better. So that's kind of who we are and what we're working on, really focusing on startup investments, but we also do some credit and infrastructure investments as well. So there's been a lot of discussion on emerging technologies here at EI 2023 and investments in the energy grid to make sure that there's a lot more um, adaptation, hardening, resilience, infrastructure being built or, or whether it's being upgraded. One topic that is maybe not seen as being on the cutting edge but is critically important is the current role of natural gas for reliability and affordability and uh, more importantly, what that evolving role looks like. Um, maybe speak a little bit. Uh, obviously, you have great experience here what you've even seen in the past couple of years with how the role of gas has changed and really uh, in your work with electric companies and, and just in, in your expertise, where you think the role is going? It's a great question. So natural gas or methane plays a lot of valuable roles in society today. It's a great utility in terms of a fuel and that we can convert it into other things we like, like plastics or fertilizers or pesticides. We can also use it as a fuel by burning it to make heat or to make power or to move machines. So it really gives us great capability and we have a lot of familiarity with it because we've been using natural gas in one form or another for a couple hundred years for street lighting and now for the power sector and all these other places. And so it's a great question for us to consider, like, what is the future of gas if it's been around for a while? And I think that we're still going to be using gas 100 years from now because it's hard to replace. We might not extract the gas from fossil reserves. We might make it from organic material that decomposes. We might synthesize it. We might blend it with hydrogen or convert it to ammonia or something like that. But the role of molecules remains important and will be so for a while, primarily because molecules can do things for that electrons have difficulty with. There are certain applications of energy like long-haul trucking or marine shipping or aviation or chemical fabrication or heating and cold climates and old buildings where molecules are better tool for the job, so to speak, than electricity, at least for now. And so that's kind of the pathway we're on. But we have to take decarbonization seriously, so we have to figure out what to do about the carbon emissions that might come from the gas. So you might consider different gases that don't have carbon dioxide emissions, or you build the gas with the carbon dioxide emissions from the atmosphere or something like that. we got to figure that out. But the role of fuels remains important. And as we have a more variable fuel mix in the power sector, namely with wind and solar, the reliability of gas as a dispatchable resource for our and turbines in the power sector will become 
really lucrative. Like it might be used less often, but more critically, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And there's also been a lot of focus here on energy storage. And I, I think it's interesting that people might not think about storage for natural gas, but effectively you can store a whole bunch of it for the, those hot days or those cold days. And it, it really does offer a lot of flexibility for the system and a lot of optionality when you're looking to have that balanced energy mix that really just lets you roll with whatever mother nature is throwing at you or helps you deal with issues. It seems like it still is a piece of the puzzle. The advantage of gases and liquids also is that they're so easy to store. In fact, we have a fast storage network in the United States of tanks above ground and caverns below ground. And we have what's called seasonal storage, where you can store the energy not just for a few hours at a time, but for months at a time. And that's really handy because our demand for energy changes so much from the cold season to the shoulder season to the hot season and that kind of thing. And that's one of the main performance benefits of gas over others is the ease with which we can store it and then use it on demand. And that's hard to replace with other options. Like batteries have their performance features, they're very fast, they're um, becoming uh, cheaper as time goes on, that kind of thing. It's hard to store three months of energy in one battery, for example. So that's a part of the suite of options we need to consider is for reliability. What's the role of molecular storage, storing these molecules like methane in these caverns? And it helps a lot. And are your teams also looking at those cutting edge or maybe even not discovered yet dispatchable technologies? I mean, the things that let you turn on and off to be responsive to the amount of energy that customers are using. It seems like natural gas right now has that key attribute and will continue to have that key attribute. But is there innovation that your portfolio companies are, are looking at that's going to help let the role of gas continue to evolve? That's a great question. And the answer is yes, we're constantly looking. If you have any great entrepreneurs or startups you want to send our way, please do so. And anyone listening who's got a good idea, please approach us because we want to expand the portfolio of opportunities. And there are a lot of dispatchable power options. Gas is a very appealing one because it's so rampable and so fast. There's also some coal, some nuclear. We're looking at small modular reactors and even some fusion. Geothermal, there's some biomass technologies. And there are a lot of storage technologies that give you at least some of the features of dispatchability. So there's a lot of things we're looking at. And in terms of like gas dispatch capabilities, we're mostly looking at different types of fuels, which could be hydrogen or ammonia or methanol, that kind of thing. But we're not really looking at new turbines necessarily, but we are looking at ways to improve reliability of the system by having assets that can be directly controlled. That also includes demand response. Things you can turn off are as useful for the grid as things you can turn on. So we see more investment opportunities on the demand response side right now. So we're certainly looking on the dispatchability side too. Are there any particular pilot projects your team's working on that you're excited about or really that you're involved with? I mean, there's a lot of funding, whether it was the bipartisan infrastructure law or otherwise. It seems like there's a big appetite to really lean into the, the test and demonstrate this piece of the puzzle. We love pilot projects. That's one of our main goals is to connect our utility investors with our portfolio companies who have new technology so they can do some pilots in real-world conditions with operational experts who have a lot of experience. So that's one of our main goals. So we love pilots. In fact, we've got hundreds of different partnerships and pilot projects worth a couple billion dollars already, and we want to build on that as much as possible. So that's an area of growth for us for sure. And it's in the areas of electrons and storage and power transmission and things like that, but also in fuels fabrication and other things. So we got a lot of different pilots, and we want more. That's where you really flesh out what a technology can do. 
And you, maybe if you can speak to it a little bit in the sense of how electric companies are regulated. Uh, in most cases, there are state commissions who are making sure that the investments our member companies are making are responsible and prudent. And that usually means that they're not just greenlighting, taking big swings on things that might work with customer dollars. Do you see a role for, for your company or a continued role in helping make that use case that these things are ready to go and actually investing in them not only is smart, but is necessary. It's very important because the commissions are really focused on protecting the consumers for the most part, making sure that prices stay low and affordable. And we like to help argue, and this is an important argument, and as a researcher, I deeply believe it to my core, that spending some money on research now helps keep costs low in the long term. So it's about keeping costs low today, but also keeping costs low 20 years from now. And if we let climate change run unabated, then that will be very expensive for society. So we have an economic interest in getting this right, and that includes research and deployment and pilots and tests and that kind of thing. Having said that, it is hard sometimes for the utilities, either in a competitive landscape or regulated landscape, to justify the money to set aside for research and for pilots. And this is in contrast, say, with pharmaceutical companies or tech companies like Amazon, which spends $20 billion more or, or more a year. Like Amazon, which spends $20 billion or more a year on research or car companies, this kind of thing. So we need the electric sector to step up and do the same. The government support helps because that means the cost isn't fully on the ratepayer. It's spread out across the taxpayers. And that makes sense because we all benefit. But this is a huge challenge is how do you get utilities or other electric stakeholders to care about R&D? Now, I'm going to ask you to put your professor hat on for a moment with the upcoming generation of students and, and postgrads that you're working with. Do they have what it takes to help us meet our goals? Because obviously there's a lot of plans that are in motion. We've seen tremendous progress through the clean energy transition, but we know that we still have quite a bit of work to do. Having the workforce and the folks who really want to make a career out of this, do, do you see enthusiasm? I guess it's a really long way of asking about the level of enthusiasm for some of the students you're working with these days. I say a lot of things on Twitter, and most of it's regrettable, <laughs> but a few things are notable. And I would say the most controversial Twitter thread I ever posted was one where I said, I'm actually a climate optimist. I think we're gonna solve climate change more quickly, more easily, and more affordably than people expect. And the primary reason for this optimism is because I have the honor and privilege as a professor to work with thousands of students. And this younger generation, without a doubt, has what it takes and is passionate about the subject. And I think this is, for them, their multi-decade challenge, kind of the way winning the Cold War was for an older generation. And they're pretty committed to it. So the sooner we can get them into leadership positions and in places where they can be empowered with innovations to get traction and commercialize, we'll be fine. They're on it. And so there's this general criticism that young people don't have what it takes or they're soft or they don't work hard. And I've got the opposite view. Like if you look at my students, they're working pretty hard and they've got bigger problems to solve that we're leaving behind for them. And I just think, yeah, we got this. The minute we get them in control, it'll be fine. Uh, the bigger problems, the older generation that's holding on to a legacy or a culture of an idea that they grew up with and they're having trouble letting go, frankly. So I've got a lot of optimism. I think students have what it takes, absolutely. The thing that we need for these problems is multidisciplinary thinking because it's not just engineers or scientists or large students or artists that will solve it. It's all of them. And so students more and more have to take on mastery of more subjects and they have to be global thinkers and they have to be multi-decade thinkers. And frankly, I think they're they're ready for it. So I'm pretty excited about that and it gives me a lot of hope. Wonderful. Well, I'm always happy to end on a positive note. So thank you again for your partnership, for Energy Impact Partners uh, being key supporters of VEI 2023. And hopefully we will see you next year in Las Vegas as well. I'll see you in Vegas. Thanks so much for having me.
Turning to the topic of transmission, our next guest, Duke Austin, is president and CEO of Quanta. He stopped by after the panel, New Approaches to Financing Transmission, to talk about his key takeaways from the discussion and the resilience projects that electric companies are undertaking to maintain existing transmission infrastructure. And our next guest here in the hub is Duke Austin. He is coming to us from a panel discussion on new approaches to financing transmission. And we really appreciate you making a little bit of extra time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So can you tell us a little bit more about the the type of work that Quanta's doing? And I I know a lot of our our member companies here, of course, are working with you, but for folks who may not be familiar. Right. So for, for our standpoint, we're right in the middle of the energy transition, building transmission distribution for the companies here. You know, it's a dawning task as we electrify North America and from our standpoint we self-perform about 85% of our work so we're looking really at craft engineering capabilities and trying to make sure we can stay in front of what we see coming over the next you know three decades. So for your panel discussion, I know you were joined by EEI's Phil Moeller. You also had some electric company CEOs. You had some other community partners. And and really, it was a a great discussion. It was kind of an interesting group of people. What were the main takeaways from the discussion? Anything that surprised you? No, I mean, a little bit. I I think the way the, the uniqueness of the models that you heard from the collaborations that are ongoing in the industry is necessary. Uh, you have federal policy pushing out initiatives to electrify and decarbonize. When you look at it and you look at how much capital is necessary, I, I do believe member companies are going to have to look together and how do you how do we build this in a, in a collaborative manner? And I've, I've probably heard collaboration 20 times. I haven't heard that in a long time from the standpoint of we all know it's necessary to build transmission. And it's, how do we get it done? How quickly do we get it done as we decarbonize? So I just, I I heard it and I I do think the uniqueness of the panel says a lot about where we're going um, as an industry. And you bring an interesting perspective because obviously there's a lot of stakeholders who are involved in developing transmission projects, but your group does a lot of the the work, the literal building of the transmission infrastructure. So just knowing that there's such a national focus and such widespread recognition on whether it's enhancing the local distribution systems or building out the transmission networks, that must be exciting for you all. But you would kind of mention workforce. Is it a bit of a daunting task or is it, is it something where you're all ready to get to work? From our standpoint, Point. We've invested a quarter of a billion dollars in workforce training and curriculum, colleges, infrastructure necessary to train. And we, we've got to do a good job as an industry making sure that we let everyone know that this is a growing industry and it's not by any means stale and you can go anywhere in the world and work. And I, I do think bringing these young kids from inner cities and getting more people to recognize where we, we've got to go as a, an industry, you know, we've got to do that together um, with our clients. Clients, but we've been able to stay in front. You know, more, more concerns are on the supply chain that's coming in. And, you know, I, I think for our standpoint, we have to deliver on the craft skills and engineering capabilities that, that we have currently and continue to grow those, those businesses. You bring such an interesting vantage point really serving the industry. Have you seen a lot of interest or growth in new projects really across the country or is it regional driven or is, or is uh, the interest and demand really just just everywhere? 
Yeah, it's broad-based. We see it across the board with your renewable sources coming in from different areas. You do have load growth, which, you know, in places we have been in negative load growth for a long time, you're starting to see 3% type load growth um, in the West. So the projects, just to keep the, the lights on on a given any given day, without the decarbonization, you're seeing a multitude of projects across uh, North America. I know in addition to a lot of the exciting new projects that are being considered, there's also quite a bit of focus on enhancing adaptation, resilience, and hardening of existing existing infrastructure. Last year for EAS member companies, they spent about or invested about $30 billion in what we call AHR projects. Is that work that you're seeing really throughout the country to really make sure that the, the current infrastructure is resilient enough to evolving climate threats or really just to meet the evolving needs of customers? I definitely think that the, the member companies are investing quite heavily in uh, resiliency. The West, a lot of fire hardening going on, undergrounding, which I would have not thought was possible in my career, uh, but I think it's the only way to go forward when you have the risk of fire and human life and everything else that's going on in the country. So that's necessary for us. And I do think when you start looking at insurance rates or uninsurability, you start factoring everything in, we will see more and more hardening on the coastlines um, and more fire hardening to the West. You know, the system has to stay resilient, especially for electrifying North America. And a lot of what we try to do here at EI 2023 and really throughout the years, together stakeholders to really learn from the experience of those who are out there doing it. And you just touched on this a little bit, but obviously there's a lot of regional differences. The United States is a big country and whether it's figuring out how to be more resilient against wildfires or hardening against hurricanes. Thank you just so much for your active participation and just bringing the experience of your teams and yourself uh, to the table because uh, there's a lot of work to be done and, and you and your team is doing a lot of the, the actual building. So we really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. And it's certainly has been fun, and um, we enjoy uh, the collaboration with the, with the EI. Thank you. And in our last interview for this episode, we spoke to Mary Sprayregan, Global Head, Regulatory Affairs and Market Development at Oracle Opower, who was the moderator for keeping the clean energy transition equitable and affordable. Our next guest here at EEI 2023 is Mary Sprayregan. She also was a moderator for one of our sessions earlier on keeping the clean energy transition equitable and affordable, where if you had heard any of our member companies speak during any panel, really, you heard those words. So it, it definitely is top of mind and, and both are equally as important. So thank you for moderating such an awesome panel and, and really for helping us to make sure that this really is at the, the forefront of the discussion here at EEI 2023. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. As you know, EEI's member companies are leading a pretty profound transformation of America's energy grid, and that really is pretty essential for helping to achieve some of the deep carbon emission reduction goals that we have and, and really positioning us to help reduce emissions from other emitting sectors of the economy. So following your conversation today with, with a pretty distinguished group of leaders, what were some of your biggest takeaways or were there any surprises that emerged during the discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the most interesting takeaways for me was that among the three companies, the issues and the opportunities are different. You know, if you look at AEP's service territory, for example, it's rural. It's rural. There's a lot of low-income communities. And it's a slightly different kind of challenge than Con Edison, you know, a very highly dense but socioeconomically diverse 
population. That piece was the most interesting to me, was to see the problem is universal. We all are heading towards decarbonization, but the kinds of approaches to keep it equitable, to keep it affordable, were different. They're just simply different depending on where you are and the kind of business structure you have. And there's a lot of innovation underway, and we've heard about it, whether it's things that are physically enhancing the grid, but also just the data that's available and, and being able to develop programs that increasingly are more tailored to the needs of customers. It really is a pretty critical piece of the puzzle that you and your team really do support and, and make happen. I know um, many folks are probably also familiar with the, the name Opower, which is part of Oracle now, but right. for, for a pretty long time now, you've been a critical partner. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. I have Pepco as my provider, yeah. and I know that I get insights on my usage. Um, we're, we're pretty energy efficient, which is great, but that's just such, uh, it, it's not necessarily new, but it's just increasingly getting more powerful. Uh, so maybe just speak a little bit about how you've seen that evolve. I'd love to. And I, I actually, it's it's our work that inspired this concept behind the panel, because what we have started to see evolve is as utilities particularly those in states that are at the cutting edge of decarbonization and electrification, their investments in communities are becoming more targeted and more significant. What that has sometimes led to is a reduction in the actual distribution of benefits across a population. So if you, you think about the different kinds of equity, distributional equity is one kind, how benefits are accruing across a population. And that's the beauty of what OPower has done and continues to do. We find ways to reach people where they are and provide actionable solutions that any household can take. We looked at our program in New York City, for example, and tried to compare the different kinds of investments that are happening across New York City. And without things like LED programs, for example, which have historically benefited everyone, anyone can benefit from a light bulb program. Without that, it's really the O-Power and the Home Energy Report and behavior-based programs that are accessible to all. And so we found that our OPower program in New York City was able to generate over $91 million of benefits to households in disadvantaged communities. And that's becoming increasingly more difficult to do. And I think that's why what we're doing is becoming more apparent again. You know, it was once new and shiny, and now it's a really crucial distributional equity resource. Sure. I know some of the program in the hub yesterday, there was an interesting presentation discussing energy literacy among, yeah. among students. And that's actually tracked down a little bit in, in recent years. So, I mean, presumably at some point that student is going to start getting an electric bill and I'm sure they'll be keen to learn a little bit more about that. But going back to just the goals that a, a lot of EES member companies have and, and the transformation that's underway, it really does take a lot of partnership to make that happen. There's a lot of stakeholders involved and we are grateful for Oracle's partnership here at EEI 2023 and helping to make this happen. But from your vantage point, knowing that you serve a, a few different states, do you see more adoption coming? Do you see customer interest growing? It's just such an interesting time with so much change. Do you, do you feel that customers are really keeping up with all the changes that's happening and the new tools that are available to them? It's a great question. And I think it really depends. Just like my, my sort of surprise takeaway from the session that every utility service territory is very 
different. Levels of digital engagement are very different depending on where you are. And I think the most important thing is being able to reach people in a personalized way and reach them where they are, not necessarily where we want them to be. And so there's different kinds of energy consumers. Probably those of us who participate in EEI conferences tend to be more interested and engaged, might be prosumers on the grid edge doing interesting and innovative things, and also potentially have the resources to do things like rooftop solar or electrification. But I think it's going to continue to be really important to reach everybody else. It will take time for the adoption curve, and we are doing everything we can with our clients to accelerate the adoption curve. So the same principles, uh, techniques, and data science expertise we apply to overall energy efficiency and behavior change, we now apply to bringing people along those more complex journeys. How do you identify somebody on the journey to EV adoption? And then how do you get them there? The same thing for heat pumps. And what we're starting to do now with our utility clients is how do you identify, engage, and enroll low-income households or energy-vulnerable households? And that's becoming a really critical part of our work with our utility clients. And I think we heard that here throughout EEI 2023 as well. Uh, there's a lot of focus on some of the tax rebates and credits included in the Inflation Reduction Act that are really targeted for customers to help them manage their energy use and to lower their bills. Uh, you had mentioned some of the transformation and, and electrification of transportation. One thing that you had just mentioned that I, I want to go into a little bit more is transportation, electrification. Obviously, we're seeing more people purchase electric vehicles and the way in which their monthly energy spending uh, patterns, they're really changing. Your electric bill might be more than it was the month before you purchased an electric vehicle, but you're clearly making fewer trips to the gas station around the corner and the volatility that comes with global energy markets impacting gasoline prices here in, in the U.S. So um, I think for us, we understand and we know that it's critical for, for customers once they step through that door to becoming an owner or renter or leaser of an electric vehicle, that there's a mind shift there. And, and I imagine some of the reporting and the capabilities to reach those customers are, are critical just so that every step of the way, like they're interested in electric transportation, and we want to make sure that they're really understanding that shift in energy because there's probably going to be a little bit of stick shock potentially for that very first bill and just getting it in their head that, oh, but I spent hundreds less at the gas station, so I'm actually coming out ahead. Absolutely. And I the, the post-adoption journey, sort of the optimization after a consumer has made that leap is just as important as the adoption journey, so to speak. And we do a lot of that work where how do you ensure that the individual understands the right rate structure, the right times to charge? Um, can see on a personal level how much they're saving. As you said, you know, you're talking about unregulated fuels and then switching to your, you know, regulated electric utility, for example. It's hard to generate those insights that are holistic for a consumer. And that is something that we help our clients do. And when I framed the question, I think I was thinking about the average residential home, but I imagine whether if you're a big corporation and you're looking to electrify your fleet, this sort of feedback information is critical because those are pretty sophisticated players in the energy use and markets and all that, much more than I am, certainly. But I, I imagine that this is um, your offerings really help those people like optimize and dial in where they have the biggest opportunities to potentially save money with their fleets. But then you also are able to step back and realize how much 
carbon emission reductions they're supporting by by really getting uh, those trucks and vans and that gas combustion engines off the roads. Yeah, in terms of the kinds of questions we get about, you know, will you get involved in X or can you do Y? That's the space where we get the most, the greatest number of inquiries about our capabilities is around that non-residential engagement space. So you, you see enthusiasm from some of those those bigger consumers of energy? Absolutely. And I think, you know, their utilities have to pay very close attention to those um, those customers for many reasons. Um, but one is there, there's such great potential in those large users. Were there any particular technologies or policies that were discussed during your session today that you think are really going to be pretty critical to helping reduce emissions? Yeah, we, we talked about something that we heard a lot throughout the sessions over the last couple of days, and that's the impact of federal investments. So we did spend some time on IIJA and IRA, how that is going to impact reducing rates on the supply side. So AEP gave some really tremendous examples of how leveraging federal funding has helped hold rates down as they've transitioned to renewable generation mix. And then for ComEd and ConEd, the IRA um, rebate programs, you know, they really hope will help transition some of the lower and moderate income households towards electrification and weatherization at a much faster pace than utilities could have done on their own. So the impact of the federal investments in energy and climate are clearly a driver in this space. And we all felt very lucky to be working at this time with electric utilities because there's much, much to be done. And I know, especially with all the federal funding, there's a big focus on making sure that all customers are benefiting from the the investments and projects that this is driving. And like you said, being able to help identify whether it's the low or moderate income customers who might be facing challenges on a monthly basis, just really identifying who can benefit the most um, really lets companies then take that next step to tailor new offerings to exactly. them or make sure that they're they're proactively meeting them where they are and and um, just thank you for being such a critical partner for EEI, but just really for what you and your colleagues are enabling every day. Thank you so much. Thank you for including us. This was great. It was a great conference. Thanks. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.